Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, I know that you didn't come from a CPG background when you started IQ Bar. What was, how did you start, when you did start IQ Bar, what was your process in terms of figuring out, uh, building out your supply chain and figuring out um, which manufacturer, for example, you wanted to, to use and how also to think about um, your inputs too um, for, for each of the bars? An important piece of context is that I came to CPG with like zero experience. Um, didn't know anyone who started CPG company, let alone a, a food and bev CPG company, um, and was truly starting from zero. So the first step was just, can I make a thing? Um, like, is it even possible to make a thing and for that thing to be good and something people want and economic and at least somewhat economically viable. So step one was just that and getting and convincing a manufacturer to make something for me, period. So, because like you have to sell the manufacturer on taking you on at first, uh, not vice versa, uh, because you're just some guy or gal with an idea and you want the lowest, absolute lowest MOQ and all that, right? You're you're not an attractive client. The goal is they, they're betting on you because they like you, the idea, and they think it can grow such that you would become an attractive client. So um, that was step one was, and, and basically I got linked up with our first co-packer in the Pac Northwest through another bar company who was in Boston. Um, and that was their manufacturer. And I was like, hey, can you, can you intro me? And so they introed me and then I, I had created early prototypes in my kitchen, but I was like, hey, here's generally what I want to make. You know, is that feasible? And they're like, well, it needs to run on our equipment. So that was the first learning I had where it's like, you can't just make something and then it's good and then you can sell it. It also has to be manufacturable. It has to be able to be created at scale on specific types of equipment. Um, and it has to be viable, you know, on a larger, on a larger stage. So basically I then took a bunch of work I had done just in my kitchen to their R and D setup, our co-packers R and D setup and iterated a bunch of times such that the, the product could be mixed, slabbed, cut, wrapped, et cetera. Um, and so that was like V1 and, and the cogs sort of netted out where they netted out. Candidly, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pick this because it's cheaper and that because it's cheaper. And so I think our earliest uh, cogs per bar was something like a buck 25 a bar or something like that, um, which maybe sounds good if you're selling it for whatever, you know, 249 or 299. Maybe that 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 sounds viable. It really isn't you when you bake in everything, logistics, parcel shipping, because we were a D to C business first and then a D to C plus Amazon business. So we were an Amazon, we were an e-com business. And so when you factor in all the logistics entailed in that, like you'll never survive at that level, but that's a, that's a start. And then from there, it's sort of like, can you create enough demand to thus create enough volume to then start having some form of leverage with your co-packer to be able to start whittling away at both materials costs, 
as well as labor costs. Um, and we can get into all we can get into the the nitty gritty of that if you'd like. Yeah, I would. I I love that. I love that. Um, and I just want to say like kudos to you because one of the reasons like I I have um I have a subscription for IQ Bar every month and one of the reasons why you know because I I studied like quite a few of the different um uh bars that kind of are 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 in your category um protein um protein bars um low low carb bars and i mean what i found part of like what i found well first of all like the the taste tastes really great in my opinion but also like on your pricing side at least online like i think it, it nets out to like a dollar 50 or like a dollar 60 a bar which for that, it's pretty impressive because all the other kind of like competitors in your set, what have I felt at least, it's usually like two bucks over a bar um, anywhere. And so um, I also just am, am also a big fan of your pricing too um, um, as well from like from like a consumer standpoint. So um, um, yeah, but, um, but I guess what, when you actually did, um, can you talk a little bit about like, after you made like your first few prototypes and needed to actually then go to, to a manufacturer to see, make sure that this is, um, this is, this of course is the vile product product and then learning that, okay, it had to run, um, on their facility. What changes specifically you had to make with your product in order for it to be like co commercially viable period. Bars are, it's funny. Like the normal consumer would go and look at a bar on a shelf and think, Oh, it's a pretty simple product. It, it's actually extremely complex um, for a variety of reasons. So just to like walk through the basic ones, like, first of all, you're dealing with something that has, so like at a high level bar, you need like dry stuff, wet stuff and sticky stuff. And there's like a zillion permutations of ways that you can mash all that together. Right. So, so the sticky stuff, let's say it's like fiber or honey or glucose syrup or whatever it is that's, your adhesion, adhesion uh, element and but it could be at room temp it could be you could heaten it up you could like there's ins an insane amount of food science that goes into just the like prep of it um mixing xyz together then adding abc into that then adding def into that how long are you mixing each time um what happens if you over mix or you're spinning oils out of the dough and now it's going to dry up earlier and blah, blah, blah. And were you learning this stuff like on the fly or were you also like, like having like a food scientist, like consulting with you when you're actually finding, when you're actually making like the prototypes? Yeah. So I talked to a number of food scientists. Uh, so there's like a, a bunch of different ways you can create products. You can go to a big product creation house and pay them 50 grand a skew and say, Hey, I want this, 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 and this, and I want these nutritional specs and here's the general taste profile. And can you make this? And I'll say, yeah, give me 50 grand and I'll make it. The problem with that is, um, let's say you get it back and you kind of like it, but you, you're like, I want you to tweak this and this and they tweak it. And then they want me to tweak this and this and they tweak it. Eventually they're like, all right, the product's done. Like we're out. And you're like, well, okay, I guess I'll go to market with this. And, and like the reality is it takes like like a thousand iterations. Um, and so I've just found you have to kind of develop that know-how and in-house and in your own head as, as a founder of a food and bev company. You will hit a ceiling at some point. Like you just do need certain expertise at some level, but you should 
pull that expertise in and then absorb it as much as you possibly can so that you get better and level up and then maybe you hit a new ceiling and eventually like you, my opinion is you should know all the food science behind your food and bed product yourself um but yeah i mean like examples of things that would be not machinable would be like let's say you make a product and it's too sticky and in your kitchen it's fine and you put it on your stick-free cutting board and try it, it tastes good like but now on a line, now it's sticking to like the slitting blades or it's sticking to the conveyor belt and leaving residue. And then that residue is building up. And so, okay, now we have to like rework the stickiness. How do you do that? Well, you can have less whatever, honey, fiber syrup, whatever, or you could heat it so it hardens quicker. So it's less wet. So it's sticking to the belt less. So there's just... um oiliness stickiness softness all have to be dialed in and temperature all have to be dialed in very specifically um such that it can mix slab on the line smooth out cut cleanly then be firm enough to be able to wrap a wrapper around it um so it was thing it was like elements like that that you're just kind of micro tweaking and got it and then and then once i get to the final product and making sure that um um that of course that that then it can be like commercially viable and actually run the line and then it can also of course as you say like make sure it doesn't fall apart in the packaging or or or, or packaging can go around it um can, can you break down a little bit i remember that you said that like originally you know from the beginning you were thinking it, it came out to like a dollar 25 for cogs i'd imagine this is also like a pretty low order qual uh, quantity too but maybe we can break down a little bit in terms of like the cost that you have to think about on the op side and in terms of making it you know a sustainable uh business apart from you know the marketing costs and that sort of thing which probably a lot more people talk about um but um what are what's kind of like the breakdown overall in in your costs yeah i mean so first of all you have to understand what you're just high level pricing structure is going to be meaning are you is it going to be turnkey which means the co-backer is doing everything right they're buying all the materials they're putting in all the labor they're doing all the work and then they just send you a bill per bar or per whatever per cookie per drink or whatever that's turnkey which is desirable in many ways right it's it's streamlined they're doing all the ordering and admin stuff they're storing it they're making it you just get a bill right that's nice because it's clean um but until you're really really big and you can really twist the screws candidly on on a manufacturing partner that's going to do have two major downsides number one it's not the most cost effective it's helpful with cash flow, but just in a pure, like how much am I paying per unit? It's going to be more. And then number two is less flexible, which may not matter in normal times, but like take like COVID when supply chains were an absolute mess, no one could get anything. Turnkey became a massive problem for a lot of people because usually it's more of a just-in-time model. They're ordering everything for that production run or you know, at most two production runs, then they're making it. And all of a sudden, 
it became you, you you really had to start ordering for three four production runs worth of stuff because you literally couldn't get stuff and then all these problems would crop up and you know janet in ordering at xyz copacker it, it just is the case that she's not gonna be super incentivized to solve that problem on your behalf and like turn every stone to figure out a solution to get you xyz input you know pull off whatever miracle that you need to pull off to get that thing to make your product to sell it to not go out of stock like she's not going to do that and she shouldn't she's not incentivized to you will you and your team will so those are kind of like the pluses and minuses of, of turnkey the other side is you own your own supply chain meaning you're buying all your inputs they're sitting on your balance sheets you're outlaying all the cash uh and you own those inputs um and you can buy a lot more right because you're the one buying it and so you can have three four production runs worth of stuff because you're the one paying for it um you are directly negotiating with all the suppliers so you have like total price transparency into everything you're negotiating directly with him you're trying to get pricing as low as possible across the board uh, and, and you're solving problems, right? As they come up, like you're, you see the problem as it arises and then you solve it and you just can get stuff done quicker and easier. So the downside to that is that, um, the co-packer is not incentivized to have low waste for example, right? Because they didn't buy the inputs. Why would they care about 20% waste? They're not incentivized to because they didn't buy the inputs. You bought them. Um, the admin downside, right? You have to place a zillion orders. You have to manage all the freight of it coming in. Like that's a whole, that's a whole set of work that you wouldn't have to do in turnkey. Um, so anyway, the, the, that's like the high level, like A or B. And we used to be A, and then we moved to B. We moved to owning our own supply chain during COVID. Um, we're always evaluating, like, would we want to go back to turnkey? Do we like having total control? So, I mean, that's like a, we have that debate annually. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Can we can you talk a little bit? It makes sense in terms of when you first started out, it using like, like the turnkey model. Um, just to kind of get off the ground, right? And also at the same time, um, you then are probably ordering all your inputs um, in for um, at, for multiple runs. Um, you're still kind of doing like maybe a, a more of like a proof of concept um, from there. But talk to me a little bit about, about that transition from turnkey to actually owning your own supply chain and how that came about. Um, it's, it seems like maybe it came about because of COVID and everything that that, that happened through COVID on the um, um, just how it disrupted, um, supply chains globally, um, and shipping globally. But, um, but talk a little bit about when you realize that, okay, we need to kind of own our own supply chain. Yeah. I mean, just, we, it was, it was almost like a survival thing. Like we had to, um, we just kept running into thing after thing after thing of like, we can't get X, we can't get Y. And it's just like inputs, just like, just like different, like ingredients, uh, ingredients and, and inputs. Um, what did you have a hard time sourcing? Um, Every, everything. everything i mean certainly imported stuff was harder um domestic stuff was not as hard but 
even domestic stuff like almonds for example domestic were most of your ingredients um international or 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 most uh domestic no most are domestic but we but here's the like the rub is let's say we buy fit we have 50 inputs that go into all our our products all that it takes for everything to blow up is one of them to not show up so yes like the like the vast majority is domestic but it just so happened that a whole slew of imported stuff was insanely hard to get um and by the way we're not the only ones buying any of these things so any supply that like giant manufacturers were pepsi frito-lay mondelez hershey etc are buying up all the stock of certain things um and then big like we had a flavor house that just literally couldn't make our flavors they're like I think they had a 16 week might have even been a 20 week lead time at one point we're like what do you mean 20 weeks we we need this in like we need this in four weeks um like sorry we you know coke and beyond meat and whatever like just came in and booked up all of our line time there's massive labor issues so they're like we literally can't make it like the plant xyz plants down you know and then all the all of our other customers are placing massive orders and so it's like what do you do what do you do if you literally can't get an item what do you do um so i mean you do a lot of things you you uh but you have to be the one doing it is the point, right? Like if that was a turnkey model, co-packers can be like, yeah, we can't get this. They came back with a 20 week lead time. And it's like, well, did you try like calling this person and that person and escalating it to here and to like getting this redundancy over here and blah, 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 blah. So it was a gnarly, 2021 in particular was just a gnarly year for, for supply chain. I mean, 2021 was bad, but or 2020 was bad, but 2021 was like really bad um so and now you're we're just kind of like a little gun shy around going back because it's like uh, i don't know it's just it's it's comforting to know that you're the one doing stuff because you just know it's going to get done totally and i mean how how also do you think about like how much to order how much to produce and kind of because of course you're the ones that are actually doing all the orders you're you know ordering the inputs i'd imagine you're ordering inputs in terms of all right we can do multiple runs every time we order maybe one um uh uh one set of these inputs not just for one run maybe i'm wrong there but how does that kind of like go but how does that kind of go into in terms of how much to actually order and um and making sure as well that you like you you don't have that problem of you know being sold out, but, but making sure you're not being maybe sold out for, you know, weeks or, or hopefully not, you know, obviously months at a time. Yeah. I mean, like the cardinal sin and, and like I said, this on your webinar is going out of stock. Like that's the cardinal sin of, of consumer goods. So do everything you can to avoid that. Um, the other cardinal sin is running out of money. So those are, that's the pull that that's the tug on both directions, right? Because you need to outlay a lot more money to buy three, four production runs worth of stuff to make enough stuff to then not go out of stock. 
So it's like, what am I? You're always like sort of seesawing around. And at the same time, and at the same time, when you buy a lot of stuff, then it's like, okay, then you also have storage fees, which also cost money. So yeah, totally. And, and, and that's the least of your worries. Like you'll eat those fees, um, to not go out of stock, but it's like, man, the material, the material costs were, were pretty gnarly for, for, for a while there. So, I mean, cash conversion cycles are very important for all these reasons, right? If you, you want to be able to turn every purchase into revenue on the back end as quickly as possible so that you can order more. This is why e-commerce is, is a good model, right? Cause you get paid today. If someone buys something today, you get paid. Well, they you get paid whenever Shopify slash Amazon remits, which is like bi-weekly or whatever. So it's super quick conversion um, versus say a brick and mortar dominant business where that conversion cycles much longer. You get paid every 30 days, 45 days, maybe even 60 days. Um, it, it also got kind of gnarly for us when we started having a, a bigger club business because, you know, the, just the sheer volume was so big. It was like we had to come up with a million dollars one time uh, to service a Sam's Club PO. We just didn't have the million dollars, straight up didn't have it. So, you know, so it's like, um, we got, a, we got a loan, we got a short-term loan, um, with a good partner and made it happen and paid it off. And it helped that it's, you know, Walmart is a, is a credible payer. Um, that's a good PA, you know, if you're, if, if, if you're, if anyone you're going to rely on to, to pay you at Walmart's pretty, pretty good. So. But yeah, I mean, you got to get creative with with financing, with financing too. Well, how do you think on the financing side, like when to use debt and when to use cash in in your mind? I know that for like one that that one particular example, like it didn't seem like you had like like the million dollars on hand. But like, when is it? As you've like grown, are you like thinking, okay, let's use, let's kind of lean a lot more heavily into debt, um, rather. E- even if we do have the cash on hand or kind of, how are you thinking about um, what kind of levers to pull? No, not now so much. Um, that was just we hit a couple moments where we were like out of cash um, and had big orders. And, but so we've gotten to a place where we have enough cash We're cash flow <clears throat> as a business we're profitable now. Um, so we don't bleed any money. It's it's really just managing cash flow swings, um, and so we don't use debt now, um, especially because it doesn't help that interest rates are so high. So debt got a lot more expensive, uh, but but we did certainly we had a couple of these choice moments where really there was no other option. We figured actually we had a Rite Aid order. This was in twenty nineteen where we also didn't have the money and no bank things like kick further and ampla and all these like sort of financing startups that are, are great and helpful now, like they didn't exist and no bank's going to lend you money, right? Like to get a line of credit with a bank, you need two, at least with B of A, we needed two calendar, uh, two profitable tax returns, which like no no CPG startup like ever has, you know. So you're you're not getting a credit line, period. So 
either you're raising equity or you're or you're getting a loan creatively. So I literally just called up our biggest investors and I was like, I need a hundred grand like tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and one of them was like, all right, so like send me your wiring details. Uh, and then it converted and uh, uh, we treated it as a, as a convertible note that we could pay back or could convert and we just let it convert and he'll absolutely crush it on that 100K. Um, but like, that was huge. We need that. We needed that at that moment. So it's, it's really just been a couple, couple moments, but we try not to use debt to that. We, the one, one exception there is we got an EIDL loan, uh, for 500 K, which was very helpful. Um, at a great rate. I think it was like 3% or something. Um, and like a 10 year payback. So if you can get, again, weird times, right? Those were happening in like COVID, which is a one in a hundred year event. So how replicatable is that? I, I don't know. Not, not very, I, I guess. Um, but like, there are these sort of like opportunities that crop up. There's so many ways to finance now, many of which are expensive, but it is a way to finance. Like Amazon will, Amazon lending will give you money. Shopify lending will give you money. PayPal lending will give you money. Like anyone will give you money. Um, so you you can get creative and dig yourself out of a hole. Yeah, no, that's, um, no, I mean, that's a great point um, in terms of like, certainly like the lending solutions for, um, you know, um, emerging brands. Like it's, it's, there's like a lot, a lot of stuff out there now that, that you can do. Like, I think that, um, that you don't have to, totally rely for example on like like using equity just to uh just to finance your business which sounds like a lot of opportunity for for different ways um how um how also do you think i mean obviously you're you know in sam's club you're in um you're in costco you're you're in like you know a number of retailers but how do you i guess evaluate right now in terms of which retailer you should kind of head into or that makes sense at this point for IQ bar and think about your overall like new sales channels yeah I uh, we think about this a little bit differently than I think most brands like the kind of the standard playbook is go natural and then kind of grow your concentric natural circle and then go conventional and then go club and we never did that so um Part of it was we couldn't get into Whole Foods because our original bars used allulose, which is a banned ingredient. It's kind of, everyone kind of agrees it's silly that it's banned. Um, it's, they don't like GMOs and most allulose is GMO, but there's also non-GMO allulose, which we use. Uh, so it's like, uh, it was always kind of silly and we, we don't use it anymore, but we, that's always the first one people think of, oh, are you in Whole Foods? You know, if you're like a better for you product and we weren't. And so we had to look elsewhere. So our first big retailer was Kroger and we're still still sold in Kroger today. Um, and so we're like, all right, that's what's available to like to us. And we would want to get there anyway, right? It's, it's bigger, it's the biggest chain. Um, how like how do we win in Kroger? And then it's just like, okay, look at the set. What are the price points? What price points do we have to get to? Um, how do we frame our products for the, the for the Kroger consumer? Yada yada. Um, 
And then we went into Walmart really early. The Walmart, Walmart um, I think like that we had a, a, a sizable online presence, which is super fascinating, by the way. Like, the, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think Walmart's coming to you and saying, hey, I saw your Amazon listings. Like, let's chat. That, that conversation isn't happening 10 years ago, but, you know, happened a couple of years ago with us. Um, which is one of the halo effects you can create by by building an online business first. It massively helps with brick and mortar on uh, getting new doors. But so then same same deal. It was like we got this opportunity with Walmart. We're like go or no go, and we're like you gotta. If you think you can succeed, you gotta go. Uh, and we did, we thought we could hit a really compelling price point. Uh, we looked at the set, we thought we could succeed in the set. Um, so, so we did that, right? And, but this all harkens back to your original points about price. Like people talk so much about marketing efficiency and have a good product and hit on the right trends. And like very rarely are people talking about price. And for most consumers in America, that's like a massive, massive variable. And, but it's like not talked about that much. And you can have a great product and just simply price that's on trend and just simply price yourself out, right? If you have a four count of bars at Walmart that cost $10, like it doesn't matter how good it is. Like you're, you're going to lose. Um, so, that's just why it's like so important to dial in your supply chain and ops and manufacturing and fulfillment because you, you literally just like, it's not even possible to sell into Walmart or Costco or whatever. Um, so, and then we had a similar thing with Costco where, where we had this opportunity to do a roadshow with Costco and we're like, can like let's evaluate this objectively do we think we can win there we did a, a road show which is like sampling on steroids did really well talked to ten thousand customers and we're like all right based on all that we think we can do well here but we're gonna have to hit a killer price point killer value and we ran all the numbers and we're like we can hit it like it's gonna be a tighter margin no question but we can hit it and us a couple of years prior would not have been able to hit it. Like I said, we started at cogs of like 125 of our, you know, I forget what our exact tally is now, but it's something in the low fifties. So, um, you know, that takes an insane amount of work. Um, but like, you have to do that to even be able to hit the price point on the other end to even make an account work, let alone all the other stuff, right? Killer packaging, good product, on trend, right call out hierarchy, blah, blah, blah. None of that matters if you aren't hitting that price point. Do you think almost like getting rejected from Whole Foods or, um, and I'm really glad also you, you like bring this up because I, you know, I talked to some founders who are building, you know, really, really great, you know, products um, that are, you know, better for you, um, you know, health and wellness um, focus. And, and I also hear some from investors as well about how, um, you know, who invest in, in some of these sorts of things being like, yeah, we want to make it like more accessible for, you know, the average American. Um, 
uh, since they invest mostly primarily in like domestic companies. And um, but when you look sometimes at the price point, like, as you say, like, you'll probably like, like for many, for many brands, like you might, you, you probably won't do, you might do well in like Whole Foods. You might do well in, you know, the, the Bristol farms of the world, but you might not do well in like the Walnut, the Walmarts, the Costco's, you might not be able to even get in just because your price, your price points are too high. And that word like accessible, it's not really that actually like that accessible, even if you have a killer product. I agree with that. I think there, there's a lot of people who, I think see succeeding in natural as like, that's a viable company and it is a viable company to a degree, but there just is a ceiling. Um, and the only way to truly build a giant brand is, is to go, is to go conventional like that. There's no other path. Right. So there's like a false positive there in, in some cases with like natural or something works there. It's like, hold tight, hold tight. That's great. But like, you still have a big hurdle to get over here. Do you think it was almost a blessing that you weren't able to get into Whole Foods because of that one ingredient in that you had to kind of go the more conventional route and kind of maybe dial in more so your pricing? Or were you always thinking along those lines initially, we have to be, you know, um, a lot more competitive with our with our pricing if we want to uh, uh, want to succeed in conventional rather than uh, because I mean obviously you like went conventional off the bat and so did that really kind of affect how you thought about pricing overall I don't know if it's it's it's, it's like I wonder it'd be interesting to see an alternate universe where we did get in and like what happens to the trajectory of the brand I I. I am. I, I am. I do think it would probably forced us to get smart quicker on cogs, price points, the mass market. Um, the other thing is too, we're an online first brand. Guess where else price matters a lot? Amazon. So like you can just look at any like big high demand category. So bars, let's say. You can just like if you're selling bars for $29.99, right? And you do nothing, nothing other than move that from $29.99 to $24.99, your volume and revenue just go up a lot. Um, there just are price points where you're shutting yourself off to large swaths of people because it's so easy to price shop. It's so easy to price compare. Um, in store and on Amazon now, you know, Amazon is a digital version of a store shelf and they're looking at A versus B versus, um, and so we kind of cut our teeth on understanding the importance of price early from actually from Amazon, uh, less so on D to C, right. Cause it's like, you know, there's no, there's no AB comparison. Um, and it's like, is the person going to, open two tabs and look at this and that website. No, probably not. But um, so I think you can get away with more premium pricing on D to C for sure. But if you want to go that Amazon route, you're going to have to go through that same exercise of really dialing in price. Yeah. I mean, especially too on the Amazon side, like if they don't know your brand and you're seeing, okay, maybe IQ bar has, you know, maybe similar ingredients or similar, um, 
similar um, like macros on on the on the nutrition side than you know maybe this other brand. Okay, well I haven't tried either of these brands, so how about I go with you know whichever brand's cheaper uh, since we haven't tried it. So you're you're kind of seeing those like comparisons if you haven't tried the brand. So that that's the that's another thing actually is trial right. So most people haven't tried your thing, and that's a big hurdle. Um, so price matters for like ongoing purchase, but it really matters for trial because I don't, I just don't want to spend a hundred bucks on something and then hate it. And then now I have to throw away nine tenths of it. Like, so that, that's a, that's a price per, that's like price pack architecture. Like in general, it's not just your unit price, but also how do I create offerings that are low barrier to entry offerings? And by the way, that applies to online as well as uh, brick and mortar. Um, so how do I create on Amazon a sub $10 item in this product line? Because I just know the trial for that is just going to be 5x what a $29.99 item is. Yeah, no, I mean, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. Kind of thinking, thinking through this on, um, on also, you know, you have the price in terms of um, for like a sense of discovery, right? Um, in terms of the people that actually haven't uh, been able to try your um, uh, try your bars um, online, yeah, sure. Repeat purchases probably they'll they'll spend a little bit more because if it obviously if they, if they love it, if they don't love it, then th- th- then they probably just won't purchase for uh, from you at all. And so um, and so that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in terms of pricing too, like how do you also think about? Um, the, like retail pricing um for your bars versus um versus like your online pricing yeah i mean man when you're omni-channel pricing gets really really complicated really really quickly and retailers are very uh rightly so emotional about about that topic so you got to make sure not to to step on toes and uh, and then Amazon just algorithmically is emotional, given that they'll shut your entire listing down if you're, you know, or or they'll change your, they'll they'll take the buy box away from you, um, such that someone else, some third party seller, is selling your stuff if you're selling on some other platform at a at a lower price. So, um, I don't know what else to say other than just you have to. Well, it, it, it's different context. So for bars, for example, you're not going to sell one bar online. Like there just is a minimum online because you're often pack it in a box, close the box, put tape on that, the shipping label on that, incur shipping fees, blah, 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 blah. So whereas if you're in Sprouts, you can sell one bar. Um, so that, like you can sell singles, more obviously more easily in brick and mortar than online. So that's a big dynamic, but then, um, you know, beyond that general principle, general best practices, you don't really want to have the exact same thing online versus in brick and mortar, because probably in brick and mortar, you're going to have to sell that thing for cheaper just to be competitive in the set. Retailer is going to want you to, et cetera, et cetera. And so you don't really want to have that exact thing online, right? Because you're just cannibalizing sales there. So you want to be really thoughtful about like, well, okay, I have a 12 pack online and I have a 
four pack over here and then I have an 18 pack over there and um to some degree kind of want to obfuscate things in, in consumers minds a bit right you don't want but the reality is you don't want everyone doing all the math everywhere and being like that's exactly where I'm going to get it because it's the lowest price in the market um but even if they did that's not a bad result because you're still getting that sale um but yeah, I mean, you, you, the general rule of thumb from e-com spanning into brick and mortar and then in intra brick and mortar, retailer A versus B versus C versus D, you don't want to have, you're going to be selling the same stuff, but you just ideally sell slightly different offerings and then, and then just know which retailers are EDLB retailers and it's going to be a lower price and which are going to be higher price and that just shakes out how it's going to shake out. Got it. So kind of have like, like multiple kind of like different offerings in terms of, in, in terms of how they like, like the pack sizes and that sort of thing for like different retailers. Yeah, and you know, which retailers are benchmarking against other, which retailers, right? So like, you know, in the club channel, different club players are looking at what you're selling at the other partner. Like we, we know, you know, Whole Foods and Sprouts watch each other and they're just like the dots are not hard to connect on where you want to be careful. How much when you when you talk to a retailer, how much, I guess, leverage do you have in terms of dictating that uh, that price to them? Mm, you it depends. It depends on the brand and the retailer. But I would even go as far as to say it doesn't matter because getting in the retailer is oh, not the important variable, like selling once you're on the shelf is. So let's say you could even force them to take a higher price and then like, they're gonna take their margin. So they're gonna mark it up unless you get them to eat some of their margin, which it's very hard to do and getting harder over time. Uh, they're gonna pass, like, pass that price on and then you're just gonna lose sales on the back end in terms of your retail price so yeah maybe maybe you have a little more power here a little more power there a little more leverage to to influence price to them your wholesale price but that's gonna reflect a higher retail price and can you win on shelf with that higher retail price maybe like if you're prime or whatever and there's just so much pent-up demand because there's so many people who are logan paul fans and whatever there's just a mania yeah you you can almost certainly charge more and that's cool. But outside of special circumstances, you're going to lose a lot of business by, by doing that. So I would say like think through more, less around how do I get retailers to take higher prices and more so what do I, what is the ideal end price on shelf that will make me be successful? Um, I have one final question for you. What would you value more today? Um, $100 of inventory, so $100 of COGS, or $100 cash. Why? Because it's hard to get the inventory? I would have thought inventory because, and the reason why is because then you can sell it if it's, you know, if you have, let's say, you know, 50% margin, then that inventory is actually worth $200 and that cash is still only worth 100 bucks. Yes, but that's only true if it's hard to make more inventory, right? So I can turn that cash into inventory. I can't turn the inventory... So 
yes, in an ideal world, you can just sell as much inventory as you possibly make, right? Like everything you make is just flying out of the, out the door, right? Um, but I, in 2021, I'd say inventory because it was like hard to convert. The question is how, how quickly and easily and efficiently can you convert that cash into inventory? And if I can convert it tomorrow, then I'll take cash because I have optionality, right? And also like freshness is important in, in food and bev. So it's like, you're always playing that game of never go out of stock, have enough stock, have enough backstop. And then not had dead stock. Keep, yeah. Keep, keep things fresh, right? Like you can't, you're not supposed to ship to UNFI with less than 75% of the shelf life left, right? So demand planning is really important and you want to have the frat, like ideally something hitting a shelf was produced whatever three weeks ago that's way better than that thing was produced three four months ago um so you that's what makes food and bev so freaking hard you have to like bake that into it too of um getting the freshest stuff out there but it's a good question i'll think more on it but i think think cash okay okay well will thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it